0: They're experienced in life. They're at least you know, 10 years old. They have at least five years of experience in our school systems. They're not newcomers. Um, so they really are a whole different category. And if we really build on their experiences, um, it makes such a difference. So we're hoping that a new term is more than just a new term. It's a new way of thinking about this subgroup of students.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest-growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Education is full of labels and acronyms. English language learners, multilingual learners, emergent bilinguals, EL, ELL, ML, MLL, EB. These are just a few of the terms that we use every day and that confuse many of us. Maybe they depend on where we live or what district we work in, and they don't even account for all the subgroups within the growing, diverse, multilingual learner population. On this episode of Highest Aspirations, we'll explore a label that has perhaps the highest implications on academic and professional success, long-term English learner, known by most as LTEL. LTELs are an area of focus in many school districts because the data and the research are clear. Exiting EL programs, or reclassifying as the term in some places, is a key lever we need to pull to ensure long-term success of multilingual learners. But what if part of the problem is the label we've chosen for these students? Is the term long-term English learners limiting opportunities and academic achievement for this subgroup of students? How can we help this group of students by uncovering the hidden curriculum of language and lessons in order to scaffold support from input to output? What strategies can be used for school-wide implementation of these practices that foster an environment where all multilingual learners, including long-term English learners, can thrive? We'll discuss these questions and much more with our guests, Beth Skelton and Tan Nguyen. Tan is a repeat guest on Highest Aspirations. He's joined us many times, and this is Beth's first time on the podcast. We're excited to have her. These two have come together to write a new book called Long Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals, a fitting title. Check out their bios in our show notes for more information. But before we get started with the episode, here's what's new on our community. Today, I'd like to highlight a great success story that highlights how Boone County School District in Kentucky combined data and academic language to boost math achievement. It's a great example of what happens when districts leverage student data to incorporate research-based strategies in support of student growth. And it ties really nicely to today's episode and the theme of long-term English learners, or as Beth and Ton would call them, experienced multilinguals. I love that. You can find that multimedia resource on Boone County success by going to elevationeducation.com and clicking on the success button on the top right of the page. That will also be shared in our community brief, which you can receive by joining our community. And again, you can find the link to join the community on our show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. Please enjoy our conversation with Beth Skelton and Ton Nguyen. Tan Nguyen and Beth Skelton, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations.
2: It's an, it's an honor to be here always, Steve. Thank you so much, Steve, for inviting
0: me on Highest Aspirations. It's been one of my aspirations, so I'm glad to be here.
1: Oh, I'm glad to make that happen for you. And I should tell everybody that it took us a long time to get this started. We were we were baffled by the introductory part of it and who was going to start first. Which is actually great. Why we're all smiling and in a good mood and laughing right now. I'd like to say I did it on purpose, but I didn't. Um, Anyway, let's get started. I'm excited to chat with you all about a book that you have coming up, and a lot of the information will be useful for people. Uh, sort of right away. And it's on a topic that we care a lot about as well. Um, you know, we've talked a ton on highest aspirations about this whole kind of elusive idea of taking an asset based approach when working with multilingual learners. And I say it's elusive because it's often something that people say, but it's a hard, you have a hard time kind of pointing your finger on what it actually is and what you do to make that happen. And then when we talk about these sort of subgroups, because multilingual learners, as we know, are not a homogenous group, like um, long term English learners. Then it becomes even more uh, important that we take an asset-based approach and even more important that we know what that actually means. So um, that's what we're going to talk about today. And I want to start with this. You've proposed a new term for long-term English learners or LTELs as we know them. Um, let's start there. What is it that you're proposing and why are you proposing?
2: Well, we're proposing a term called experienced and that comes from Dr. Manika Brooks, who is an expert in the field in long-term English learners, quote-unquote, long-term English learners. And we're trying to switch it around because in her book, she talks about, like, why are we, when we describe long-term English learners in a deficit way, they stay in that um, that whirlpool of um, low expectations. And that low expectations means they don't have access to all these classes. They don't, um, they don't get to have the same experience as other students because they're like, Oh, there's something wrong with this person because it's taking them a long time to learn English. Yet when we talk about the 10,000 hour rule, people are always like, that's amazing. You work 10,000 hours to to learn this skill, to develop this business, to develop this um, experience. We we applaud that. But when a person takes quote unquote 10,000 hours or it takes a long time to learn English, why is that a deficit? And we're saying like everyone has to learn a certain pace. The second thing about this, uh, the old term along to English learners is that it focuses on English as if the student only comes to school to learn English. Mm-hmm. And so we're really switching it around. We asked Dr. Menaker, like, listen, we don't know what term to use. We don't wanna use LTELs anymore. And she proposed experienced multilinguals because we're first focusing on the, the multilinguals as in, they know multiple languages. But the experience part, that's an asset base where we're saying, oh my goodness, they can use all these languages and they have the experience of many years of switching between languages, of using this word for that context, using these sentences for that situation. That's something, that linguistic awareness is an asset that only comes from experience. And so we're like, perfect. Experienced multilinguals is the assets-based term for long-term English learners.
0: And we wanted to break the cycle as well. So this term LTEL has been out a long time and Mm -hmm. um, for over 20 years. And I've been doing a lot of workshops and trainings and support for teachers for this subgroup. And one of the first things I always do in a workshop is ask the teachers, hey, um, when you think of students that are classified currently classified as long-term English learners what are some adjectives that that come to mind and without a blink these deficit-based adjectives come attached to that label it's almost like they go together unmotivated um, struggling um you know not caring uh not trying I mean all of these adjectives that just somehow are glued, to the label and we we really want to break that because that's not our experience of working with this group of truly experienced multilinguals they're experienced in our schools they're experienced in life they're at least you know 10 years old they have at least 5 years of experience in our school systems they're not newcomers um so they they really are a whole different category and if we really build on their experiences um it makes such a difference so we're hoping that a new term is more than just a new term. It's a new way of thinking about this subgroup of students.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot in a name, right? There's an expression like that. I don't, I don't know if I got it right, but there's a lot in that, right? And so the foundation of it is is, is, na- is giving these students a name or a label. I don't like the term label, but I don't know what else to use. That is actually asset-based before you start. Um, and, and you know, I love the idea of this 10,000 hours, Tan, that you mentioned and understanding that there are so many subgroups here, and, and oftentimes, I think many teachers will confuse or mix these students up with others, not knowing that they have this experience um, uh, behind them that they can that they can leverage. So I think that's kind of the foundational piece of it. I'm going to attempt, and I'm going to mess up, as most teachers, I think, will, to use that term, experienced multilinguals, um, throughout this episode. And forgive me if I go back to LTELs or Long-Term English learners. So... Um, so... Let's talk a little bit about the research and the data because it's not great on experienced multilinguals or formerly known as long-term English learners. Graduation rates are among the lowest of any student group. Um, Their long-term outcomes do not look great. There's lots of studies and research out there. How do you think altering that deficit-based narrative around these students will set them up for a more equitable educational experience and hopefully better long-term Outcomes, and I realize you just kind of talked about that in terms of the way that they're perceived by educators. But taking it a step further, where is this all going to go? Hopefully.
0: So this is this is really one of at the heart of it, right? So what we found with our research, reading Monica Brooks' research, um, research from Karen Thompson out of Oregon, what really is happening for a lot of these students is that because of that label because of their classification through um, really in many places, no fault of their own. Um, They are still classified as language learners after five or more years. Um, They are required to take certain courses and not allowed access to other courses. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a structural barrier. That's number one.
1: A whirlpool of low expectations as, (laughs) as Tom mentioned earlier, I wrote that one down.
0: Another thing that happens is that the kids themselves take that on. So I have interviewed for the book and for, um, in my own work, my own students and other students interviewed them about their own experiences. And honestly, when I asked like, why do you think you're in this English language development class? Like this required course, for example, I have had students say, because I'm dumb, Ugh. they take it on. So now they don't believe that they can also achieve So there's a lot of structural, um, there's practice kinds of things that we have to change. There's attitude changes that'll happen. And I'll tell you a story of a student who fought back and this was one of my own. And he was in my English language development class and it was a replacement class for his English language arts class. And so that he was getting his English through my course. And he begged and he said, please let me go to the grade level English language arts class. I know I can do it and I need that class. I'm like, why do you want out? Like out, quote unquote, like we're a jail. Right? Like, why, why do you want out of the English language development course? And he's because I, I knew his scores on all the tests. And I'm thinking, He's going to really struggle in English language arts, right? And and he said, "Look, I want to go to this college, and if I don't have four years of English language arts on my transcript, I will not be able to get into the school of my choice in order to become an engineer." Like he already had this frame, he was ready to roll, and how can I possibly hold that back? I talked right. to the. Administrator, I talked to the English language arts teacher. I said, this is on a trial basis. I'm here to support. I told him, yes, you're going. And if you ever have any questions, come and ask. I can support you through this. Well, I never saw him for the whole year. And at the end of the year, he came by, um, thanked me very much for letting him go. And he had a B in the class. And he passed and he was on to the next year in English language arts. So that was a motivated kid who had this view, who also got the system, right? And that's an unusual case because most students just go along and do what we tell them and have no idea that they may not be having full graduation credits or that they're, that the courses that they're in in high school are not leading toward what they need for their future plans. So it's structural that we want to change, but it's also attitudes and it's teachers believing and teachers like me, right? Believing you can do it. Yeah. You can. We'll put supports in place. I know that you can achieve.
1: Yeah. You know, and the, and, and Tana, I'll let you jump in in a second if you want to, but the, the, um what you're bringing up is really interesting because you're talking about a student who's really, really motivated and having taught high school for, you know, a long time before coming to Elevation I know that not every student has the ability or they they may have the motivation that this young uh, person had, but they may not know exactly what they want to do in their future. Right, Most don't. Kind of leads me to my next point, which is about like, what do we need to do structurally to make sure that for every one of those students that you just mentioned, there's probably 10 that aren't going to advocate for themselves in that way. And that's in many ways our job to do. So, I want to get into that piece next, that like structural piece. But, Tan, I want to give you a chance in case there was anything that you wanted to add on to that.
2: Yeah, I will just actually have Beth talk about, like, describe how do we define uh, long term English learners so that people get a picture of that and maybe paint a picture of a student who is a, a quote unquote long term English learner so I can tell my own story of being one. Sure. So,
0: in the United States, um, students are assessed, as we know, everyone listening to this podcast if they speak a language other than English at home. And then they're in this system. And depending on the state that you're in, you're either using the WIDA access test or you're using the Texas TELPAS test or they're tested on a California test or um, wherever they are in the US, um, they get a test every year. And depending on your state, in addition to having a certain number on that test, that final language development assessment, you also have other requirements such as grades in certain courses or the state test at the end of the year in math and language arts, that you have to have a certain score on each of those. So, actually, we're asking our long term English learners or our, our experienced multilinguals to have higher expected, like higher test scores than. Students who go home and speak English. It's it's like they have extra burden to prove that they can succeed. Um, And so that's this group of students that in many ways, like the one that advocated for himself, and you're absolutely right, Steve, that's the anomaly and why it's stuck in my mind as a... Most students are like, they're just going along uh, trusting the system, right? Oh, I guess I have to be in this course. And they might grumble about it, but they're not advocating to get out. And so how do we shift our own mentality? Like we can, they, they can succeed. And how do we simultaneously then support the language development that is still ongoing, right? It's a long-term process. How do we support that language development as well as giving them access to advanced placement courses, international baccalaureate courses, our honors courses, because they, there is nothing cognitively wrong with any of these students. They just haven't been given the opportunity to demonstrate that because of their language development score on one assessment. So Tan has a personal experience about this situation as well.
2: Yeah, so when you hear me speak, uh, writing is a different thing, but when you hear me speak, like you can tell that I am a fluent English speaker and like English is my strongest language, even though I speak multiple languages. Uh, but when you, and you, when you look at my transcript in high school, it was a 4.0. Right? I was on like all these distinguished honor lists, yet when I got my SAT score, so this is like me being in school, like 10th grade, 11th grade, getting my SAT scores, the like, so the at that time it was 1600 get a perfect. The mm-hmm. average was 1100. I'm I would I'd would be embarrassed for you to guess. I'll just tell you my score for SAT after having gone through an English only system from basically kindergarten all the way to 11th grade was 910. Mm. That I like that was low. And like though I how did I get A's in all of my classes? How was I given all these awards? And yet my reading, writing, mathematics skills were so low because I got by by my language skills, by my spoken English skills. I could read and write, but not at great level. And that test was on grade level to see what I could do. That's what it means. That this is what happens when we see that a kid has exited, quote unquote, I and I exited the services when, when i fifth grade but i still remember in sixth grade a teacher asking kids to read uh from, a, from a, an anthology and i volunteered to read and i started reading and then i noticed i heard myself decoding words i've never seen before and having a, a struggling through that until the teacher said thanks for reading let's move to another student and i then i was just like thank thank goodness for moving on this that that these both of these examples both my SAT scores, and that reading experience in grade six, this is what happens when we don't create the conditions where we have to teach both social and academic language Mm -hmm. explicitly for students. I think that's the structural thing that you're gonna talk, uh, that you asked uh, earlier. So I'll just go into it now. It's, we we know that content teachers um, particularly don't have experience teaching uh, language or teaching english or academic language but yet every single content area has academic language that has to be taught Mm -hmm. both at at the vocabulary level at the sentence level at the discourse level and when we don't teach those things students like pass the test go on to pass the 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 grade but yet when they are assessed externally um, they perform on a much lower level and so yeah there's a disconnect yeah, there's a disconnect, right? Because they can perform for the teacher who is assessing them, but when they're when they have internal assessment, it's totally different. So here's an example. Here, um, I co-teach with with two science teachers in the ninth grade, and this week or this unit, we're we're having students create their own lab report, and right there, there there's a really clear difference between social language that students are using, but also the academic language that students have to use inside of the lab report, mm-hmm. such as an example, independent variable, dependent variable, right? The teacher has to teach what what an independent variable is and what a dependent variable is. If not, students are not going to be successful. So, my, so like, let me give you an example of a, a student. One of my students, he is changing the, uh, he's investigating if the location of a plant determines how many stomatas they have. A stomata is like if you look under the leaf and like if under a microscope there's little little holes where the oxygen goes mm-hmm. um, out and carbon dioxide goes in. And so he's investigating if I take a leaf from on the field and a leaf that's in the shade, do they have different stomatas? Right? And so his so that so we look at the independent we look at the vocabulary words, independent, dependent variables, stomata controlled variables. But then now students have to write it in a sentence. Like the hypothesis is a very structured way of writing the hypothesis. You have to have start with your independent variable and end with your dependent variable. So it'll sound like this. Um, If plants are in uh, a sunny place, then they will have more stomatas, right? So students like this structure, nobody is born with that structure and we don't speak that way. Uh, at the kitchen table. We don't say, hey, how you doing? Well, mom, let me tell you about the stomatas that I found. Yeah, yeah. But we, and so the, the, the onus becomes a falls on content teachers to teach the language that the experts use in their field. Right? And so when we teach, when the, when the teachers reveal this invisible language, students become successful. And that's the condition where uh, experienced multilinguals become successful beyond their label.
1: Right. And I would add all students, you know, in general too. I mean, it'd be going through that. And I actually have to say that I have seen, and look, I'm looking at it from the outside looking in here, just speaking with people like you, experts in the field and teachers as well. I do think that we have um, some momentum right now with academic language and the way that it's working with content teachers. I look at it, it seems very different than when I was in the classroom. Um, That's a while ago now. We're talking about eight years, which seems crazy, but it is. Um, But it seems like there has been some momentum there. And that momentum comes from a lot of obviously the work that you all and others are doing. And so I want to get into some of that work and talk a little bit about what we can learn from what you've learned in kind of writing this book. So tell us about the instructional framework that you suggest. Um, we'll, we'll kind of start there uh, for teaching experienced multilinguals.
0: So we have looked at the big picture and said, how does how do all of these strategies and ideas, how does everything fit together? And we really lean in heavily to understanding by design, you know, Wiggins and McTai's framework. And it's basically how do we take that and add language all the way through? So, with all the work that I do with teachers across the country and internationally, and Tan's work with all of the teachers in his school and internationally with his work, what we often find is that teachers are great about planning lessons, but not every lesson always builds toward wherever they're going on that kind of summative or end of unit assessment. And so we really start there at this end of unit assessment and and getting into what's the language in that clearly you've got the content. You're the expert in your math, your science, your humanities. You're the expert in that field. You know that content, but what's that hidden, as Tom said, revealing the language, or as we call it in the book, and you've heard it in the language circles, unpacking that hidden curriculum of language mm-hmm. inside the box of your content curriculum. And so as we look at that final summative project, that's the starting point. And then Building out lessons, daily lessons that lead toward not just the content, but also scaffolding each of the language pieces. So in Tom's example about the hypothesis, that's being taught explicitly, this is how you write a hypothesis. Here's the structure. The final project is going to be your own lab report, your own um, investigation of some kind for science. We are structuring not only how to do that investigation, but also what that final report looks like at the big picture level. What are all the pieces? When do I use the word I? And when do I stay in third person? When do I use the passive voice? Like it happened, something Mm -hmm. happened, right? They have to actually learn that in the context of the lab report and it's a perfect place for learning all of that language. But the teachers themselves have to become aware of what that hidden language is because as science experts or math experts or humanities experts, they just take for granted um, that language. That's their world, they're swimming in it. And so we're trying to tease apart and make very, very clear that in the final assessment, there's hidden language, let's make that explicit. In your daily lessons, there's hidden language. Let's make that explicit. Let's make sure that the input that you give them, whether that's through video or hands-on activities, all of the input the text the reading that that's comprehensible their understanding like tan was describing his own experience in 6th grade reading this text you know here's this kid that's done great all the way through passed all the way through and then he reads a grade level text and he's like what is this word right we have to make sure that that's comprehensible and then finally when it's time to output either speaking or writing how are we supporting that speaking and writing so that it's beyond social language. Cause Tom sounds great when he's talking to his partners and his team about his comprehension, but it's social language. So how do I add language even to the output so that all the way through from assessment to daily lessons to that input, and then the final output, I'm adding that language piece all the way through um, each part of the framework. Um, it's really we have a metaphor for it um Todd's favorite is like you can't see the forest through the trees right that yeah yeah. we're, we're gonna say let's start with the forest then or what we would call the orchard and we changed it because um the orchard is the big picture that's your final assessment that's where all the blossoms the blooms the the fruit comes out right that's the big orchard each tree in that orchard is contributing each tree is your individual lessons The rain, the sun, um, any food, like fertilizers that you put on it, that's your inputs. Those are all the inputs that are going to help that fruit grow. And then the fruit, that final product, that's what you are speaking or writing at the end. So that's our metaphor for the framework is, is the orchard, the individual trees, the fruit, the inputs, the sun and the rain. So hopefully that's a visual that makes sense to teachers as well.
1: Yeah, I love that visual, and I love, of course there's a metaphor, um, which is great and, and something that we can visualize. I mean, as you were talking, Beth, I mean a lot of this to me, it it sounds like backwards design with a folk with with an extra additional focus on the academic language that teachers may be just kind of accustomed to over time, right? I mean, so this isn't like totally breaking a system. It's it's really just thinking more deliberately, stepping outside yourself a little bit, being a little bit reflective something that's going to improve practice in general, it may, it may require a little shift in muscle memory, uh, particularly for people who tend to be a little bit improvisational and on the fly. And I consider myself one of those people, but people like me can always, um, can always learn to be a little bit more strategic and that's an advantage, you know, that they'll have moving forward. Um, that's great. So that's a nice overview. Can we dive in and walk through each of the, each of the parts? Like what's, what's the first element here?
2: Well, the first element is going back to the archer orchard is thinking. Okay, the assessment. How can we plan the assessment <clears throat> backwards, and how can we uh, make it more equitable? So there are two types of assessments, and we've grouped them into sit down paper exam assessments, or and then also performance based assessments. We'll talk about the sit down assessment first, the summative assessment, where students have multiple choice, or um, they will have a short writing text, or they will have to match things. What we recommend is that when there is academic transferable words that teachers add synonyms behind that. Let me give you an example of a grade seven um, unit on ecosystems. The teacher wanted students to read this sentence, primary consumers feed on producers. Wonderful. So the word, we're not going to change the or translate the word primary consumers because students have to know that word in English and also with producers. But we will change not change but we'll add the word eat behind the word feed because not that's not an a, a very common word but the word eat is so we don't want students to see that sentence that they don't know what the word feed is and then that, that, that test becomes a, a reading test instead of a content-based test so yeah great point. point right one thing we can do, add synonyms, but we want kids to keep, we want teachers to keep the word feed in it so that students at least have exposure to the academic language. Um, let's move to the next one, which is labeled or a uh, diagram. So let's say that you have a picture that you want students to talk about in your assessment. We recommend that teachers diagram that. Let's give an example of a food chain. If you're having students talk about different parts of that, different organism in, in that food chain, label that tiger label that owl, label the rabbit, label the word plants so that students can see that animal. But let's say that they see the word lion, but they they don't know how to say lion in English. They know how to say it in another language, but they just need the word that that label so they can. And they know that a lion is a tertiary um, apex predator because they learned that in class, Mm -hmm. but they don't know the word lion. And that's going to be that's going to cause them to not be successful again. That's an equity issue. Another thing that we often see teachers do um, in assessment, and this is like me, a teacher meaning me, I would ask two part questions, like describe the causes of global warming and explain the effects. Those are two things. And what if a student just answers the first part, describe the cause of global warming, then they would have 50% or basically zero because they didn't do the um, explain the effects part. So we ask teachers just to do first, ask, Describe the causes of global warming, full stop, let students answer, then explain the effects. Again, so this, the, the way we structured it, the way it was, it was structured originally with a compound uh, question is quite difficult for kids who are developing their English skills. So that's, those are assessments. We'll move to performance-based assessments where students are doing reports or they're doing a poster or a project where it's not just a sit down where students have to produce something over a period of time so let me give you an example um the what we can do is very tangible is that for we can sequence the different parts okay there uh, in this lab report you first have to talk about the research the second thing is you're going to have to talk about your hypothesis the third thing is you're going to have to list the variables the fourth thing is you're going to have to list the materials right so now in so, so we're sequencing for it for them and there's more other sections for the scientists who are listening. There are other sections too, um, but let's just go with those four. Each section the teacher add, uh, add prompts or add questions. For example, let's say for the research part, the, it, it wouldn't just go, it wouldn't just say research and then have students respond. It would, it would say go, go, to re- go find uh, what the literature already talked about Um, in terms of your independent variable go find your uh, research where it talks about your dependent variable find another uh, source where it talks about the relationship between both of those those prompts right there are so helpful for when a student says research when when they see a document that says research now they know what the teacher really wants that's the clarity part Um, let's move to another thing like teachers can link resources let me give you an example in my eighth grade class where i'm co-teaching art i never thought i would be co-teaching art super fun but the teacher is uh, the teachers want students to create a sculpture where they're going to be giving it to a person who they really love and that sculpture has to represent their love for that person so they're going to use posture scale eye contact and symbolism. Students in the IB uh, International Baccalaureate they do a lot of writing and reflecting. And so the teacher for the strand wants students to talk about art um, techniques, posture, scale, eye contact, symbolism. So, the, so what the, the, the teacher did in this section is they added links to examples of posture, scale, eye contact and symbolism. So students could see that when they went to the instruction, right? A simple thing is just as linking on the instructions for students is so it will go a long way the last thing that we, we recommend teachers do for performance based assessment is just asking students so, so giving them the prompt but then giving them a sentence frame or um, word banks for example here let's go let's go back to that eighth grade sculpture um, assessment uh, the sentence starter is the main colors I've used in this piece are and are used to represent, blank, blank, blank. For example, the color was used to communicate. And I got that only because I sat next to my art teacher colleague and, and asked, okay, you want them to talk about uh, art technique. What is the language you would like them to use? Can you give me a model response? If you were to answer this, what it would sound like. He then said the sentences and then I just like took, wrote out the frame and I took a everything that he said that was the content. And I said, is this something that you would wanna give kids? And he said, yes, this is exactly what we want. And the best part is I was planning for the multilingual students in my class, but he liked it so much that he used it for all students and asked yeah. all students to use it because students aren't born artists. Well, they aren't, well, many of them are, and they're <laughs> born with artistic techniques, mm-hmm. but they aren't born with the ability to speak like an artist. And yeah, so we or- have to- Right.
1: Or scientists or historians or, right. or anything exactly. else, right?
2: Exactly. And so that's those are recommendations for the performance-based assessments. The goal is to make sure that assessments are equitable. We are not, in our book, when we are recommending these things, we're not saying dumb down the curriculum, lower your expectations, reduce the standard. We're saying keep them high. Let's provide scaffolds so that they're successful. We always use the, word, the phrase, what are the conditions we can create for students to be successful for the long term? And Just like we're um, nurturing our or- orchard, what are the conditions for that orchard to produce fruit in a year, in two years, in a month, in a season?
1: And again, that goes back to the, the backward planning piece a little bit and adding that extra element. To, and I love the orchard example to make sure that the fruit, you know, it brightens, right, and becomes what it needs to be instead of just haphazardly throwing things in along the way because, you know, time's going by quickly and you need to get the lesson delivered, right? Um, This is a, it's, it's much more strategic in the approach. And again, it, it does require a bit of an extra step, but not, not that much. You just outlined some things, Tom, that are, that are very, very simple and easy um, to do. And you mentioned the assessment. I know that's only one part of the framework. What, what other parts are there?
0: Well, Tan basically set up the second one already, yep. which is he's got the whole orchard right now. You know, each tree in that orchard has to contribute somehow. So each lesson has to contribute to the language and the content. And the way this was developed is um, basically what Tan was saying about that model response. Uh, what does it sound like? What would it sound like at the end of this one lesson? And a lesson could be you know one class period, a couple class periods, but you know basically one lesson. What what would it sound like if students um, answered? Your key question or your essential question or your you know guide your prompt, what would that sound like? And then you kind of just write out your own model response and then you know what's the content and the language in there, and you can backwards plan that lesson. So I have a a story where this was really became super clear to me. I got to work with a ninth grade physics teacher and we had not co-planned, but I got to go into the class to to see how things were going as a starting point. And phenomenal teacher who was doing everything um, exploratory, kids hands-on. And the lesson was about finding the focal distance using convex lenses and a light source. And so here I am in this class and the kids uh, were from like 13 different countries, something like that, and all kinds of languages going around, English for keywords, but you heard just lots of languages. And they were all super engaged in creating their own tool to find the focal length, right? So I'm observing, it's a really engaged lesson. And at the very end, the teacher gives the students the prompt, describe how um, how you found the focal point or something. Oh, he, he said, no, he said, explain how you found the, the focal point. That was the, the prompt. And um, one student said, well, it gets bigger when it gets closer. And that was the end of the explanation. And the teacher responded to the content, which is right on. Like, I get it. That's that's a physics teacher who is excited that the student is getting this idea of size and distance, right? And getting closer and getting bigger and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm in there listening with my language eyes. And I'm like, I'm not sure what it means. I don't know what's getting closer to what. Like, I, I didn't get anything in an explanation. So we sat down after the lesson and I said, so what would a scientist say if they had absolutely understood this idea of focal length and and finding it, using all of the terms. And so he kind of wrote that out and I said, super, how can we get our students to sound like that by the end of the lesson? And, and he was like, he got it. He's like, oh, I would need to make sure they had a word bank with convex lens and light source and distance and all those words would have to be on there. So they use that. And like, that's great. Anything else? He said, oh, I could probably do an if then clause, like frame it. So like Tom Mm -hmm. said with the hypothesis, you know, just to explain what was happening. And we looked at his model response and then came up with, here are some possible frames went back in the next day and the, and the kids were able to do it. They understood the content. They just didn't have the language frames to do it. So this backwards plan for the summative is exactly the same thing for daily lessons, is that you, you think through, um, what is it I want students to be able to say or write by the end of this lesson? And then quickly, you think, what's the prompt? Is it describe how X happened? Explain why something happened. Um, Explain how you solved the problem. That's a classic one in math, right? And then what would a mathematician say? How would that sound? Then look at the language in there. And language being beyond vocabulary, but also is there a certain sentence structure that's coming up? And then is there any way during the lesson you can support that? And maybe it's putting up a word bank and saying, students, practice with these words as you're explaining how you solve. Students, practice with this sentence frame, this this extended structure when you're practicing with your partner or when you're writing your exit ticket. It's the same process as Tan just went through, but at a a tree level, at an individual word uh, lesson level, I should say, um, how, how do we do that same process? And it's really about thinking through what do I want at the end of this? What would be a great output? And what I always tell teachers is think about your star student. Right? If your star student said that at the end of this lesson, you would go home feeling like a hero, right? I did a, I'm an awesome teacher. So then you say, okay, we can get kids there, right? And especially experienced multilinguals. They're not newcomers. They've got a ton of experience already. They have a lot of social language. We just need to give them the academic piece so that they sound like that mathematician, that historian, right? That they are.
1: Yeah, you know, and it occurs to me as you're talking about this, we we I think as content teachers get so excited when a light bulb goes off, and we know that they've understood the input and they get it. That that often that next step of output of like I'm going to use, seeing a student use the academic language that they need to do to actually explain the concept because they may very well get it. They probably do, but could they then explain it to someone else? Um, and so it's it's not it's like it's it's a it's certainly wouldn't judge any teacher for being like, this is great, light bulb went off, this is amazing. Um, but how do we take that next step? And in your case, Beth, and in the example that you gave, Ton, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole about co-planning or co-teaching, but there was someone else in the room, right, who was able to say, well, how can we get this person, this, this student to the next step? And then a light bulb went off for the teacher and said, oh, I can do this. Because we have blinders on in many ways, and we see these kids doing amazing things. And sometimes we think, we get that kind of pobrecito syndrome that I've heard a lot about about, oh, that that's it. Like they got it. Like let's 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 go out with a bang and, and call it a day. But we have to take that that next step, which I think is um is what you're talking about now. And that's exciting.
0: And this is one of those original questions you ask about why the issue with um low expectations or with the term long-term yeah. English learner, when teachers know that their kids are quote unquote labeled long term, that's what happens. Yes, they understood good enough. Yeah. I did, I, yeah. I'm not gonna worry about making sure, oh, their writing is good enough, right? Yeah. Or what they said is clear enough. And so we're saying no, for long-term success for these students, we really have to go that next step and structure the output.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm glad you uh, that's 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 great. Um, and that's important. So I'm I'm going to skip ahead a little bit on the questions that we had kind of talked about, because I think this is a good time now. We're talking a lot about specific situations in specific classes where one of you has been with another teacher, one art, one physics, and there were some other examples, and took them to that next level using academic language and made sure that we didn't fall into the trap of these uh, experienced multilinguals, formerly known as LTELs, did something that I didn't think they could do, so I'm going to stop there. That's like individual classes where you're there. What about school-wide? How do we implement this school-wide?
0: Well, that's really a great question. So it it is leadership has to get involved, right? And make this a priority. And then it can happen in a lot of different ways. And I'm going to refer back to experienced multilinguals are generally in fifth grade and up, right? Because that's just by definition, So this is the time when most schools have departmentalized. Most schools by sixth grade, they're teaching. There's a science department, a language arts department, a math department. And and what we found is that it's really, really effective to work with departments. And starting this with how does this look in the math department? How does this look in, in science? Because content is king. If we can build the language around that, that content and just go with that. Right. And so that's why we kept giving examples from content areas um, because we have to run with, yes, content is my driver Mm -hmm. and the language for that content has to come in with it. So when
1: you say, when you say, sorry to interrupt, when you say content is my driver, are you, are you saying that from the perspective of the teacher?
0: yeah. Or just the department
1: in general. Yeah. Yeah,
0: from that department generally. I agree with
1: you. I was just curious. Yep.
0: Yeah. It's it that's where your standards are. And it's then saying, okay, but there's all this language in that standard or in that content that we're going to help you unpack. And so how that can look in a lot of different ways. It might be starting with student work and that we analyze student work, bring in the work, like the exit tickets. It could be something really like a, a paragraph. And I'm, I'm doing this work right now with a district in Chicago. And I have kind of once a month during their team planning times, we focus in on strategies, but we start with student work. What are students doing? And then say, how do you build from there? And like I said, it could be as easy as an exit ticket coming out. What kind of language are you seeing in that exit ticket? What is the language telling me about their comprehension and their ability to express themselves? So it's departmental work, but it's systematic over mm-hmm. the whole the whole school. You can start with student work. You can do lesson studies. That's down at like the far end of how do we work together where maybe as a department we plan a, a totally great lesson. And you might bring in your English language development teacher. This is again, where leadership comes in because it yeah. might mean like release time for one hour during the day. And we co-plan just what we think is going to be an awesome lesson. And then that team goes in and watches the kids during that lesson. And we're watching the students. How are they outputting? Are they using the language? Are they getting the content because we planned around making it comprehensible and making sure the output was going to be um you know academic so then they they get all that information from the lesson study and then report out and then the other teachers that observed they get to go in and do that again in their class if it's the same you know lesson they get to practice it again after making any tweaks so we we talk about everything from the individual student level system wide to whether you can co-plan or co-teach with an English language development teacher in the school or with your department at a lesson study level. Mm -hmm. And it's where leadership comes in and says, I believe in this enough that I'm going to provide, whether it's embedded time during the school day for you to co-plan or time with release, meaning there's going to be a couple of subs coming in the building once a month that they're going to cover for that co-planning or for the lesson study. And so there's a lot of different ways that we talk through how how leadership can really support this systematic, systemic um, implementation of these ideas with the support. Like you said, it's great when you've got two brains thinking it through, both the content and the language person really supporting each other.
2: And the reason we want that is because there is something called uh, the teacher lottery, the concept of the teacher lottery, where like you have four, let's say you have four science teachers. And, and work gets out that this one science teacher is particularly successful or the result of this one teacher is pretty high. Mm-hmm. Look at the, the, the standard size assessments. and the parents and the students are clamoring to get into that class. And that's a teacher lottery. And we would want our, our children, if we had children, to go into that person's class as well. Yet, what about the other three teachers? And this model where we're saying, look, we can all learn to create the conditions where experienced multilinguals are successful so that not just a group of students is successful because they are lucky to have this teacher, but that all students are lucky because they're at this school. And that's the equity part.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it takes a little bit of everything that, Beth, you described. And, you know, Tom, what you just mentioned is. I, you know, when I was teaching, and I knew somebody was doing something great in my department, I would want to go into that class and figure out what they were doing, and vice versa. Um, there's just not enough time to do that, you know. So that's where you need those structured situations where you're looking at things from a from a schoolwide level. But if we're seeing success, um, then we're obviously more likely to go down the road of trying to make some some changes. Um, So I got a little bit out of order there and we're, we're kind of short on time. So I want to, I want to begin to wrap this up and I want to talk about the, the title of the book book comes out in May, um, but the title is, is a play on words from the term L tells what was the, what, what is it? And what was the motivation behind that?
0: The title is long-term success for experienced multilinguals. And yeah, we kept that word long-term, but we twisted it, right? It's the positive that, that it, is a long-term process and that our students will have long-term success if we do these, create these conditions for that long-term success. And like the orchard, you baby it, right? There's lots and lots of inputs all the time until you get the fruit. And we're trying to see this as that process and continually creating the conditions. Um, So it really takes a a twist on the deficit lend of long-term and makes it the positive. Um, And then we also wanted to make sure that the asset-based term of experienced multilinguals was in the title um, and it's really about this success beyond the classroom, but into their lives. Um, and I think that changing any term is also a long-term process. <laughs> so um, it's got a lot of layers for why the title.
1: Yeah, for sure. But I love it. I mean, the, the very beginning of it, you lay it out uh, in, an, in an asset-based way right away, which I think is, um, is what you need to do when you're doing the work that you all are doing. Um, tell us how... How can people? So the book's again out in a couple months from when this episode will will uh, air or will come out. How can people learn a little bit more about the work that you both are doing, Tony? You've been on before, but I'd love to hear both of you how people can learn more about the work specifically um, on this particular topic uh, between now and when the book comes out.
2: Well, uh, you can find it on if you just type in long-term English, long-term success for experienced multilinguals. You'll go to Corwin, and Corwin will you'll can buy the book there. It'll be available on Kindle in print. And I, Steve, will give you a code as well so that you can get it um, for twenty-five percent off. We'll actually read the code to you. It's C is in cat twenty-three one zero four. That's twenty-five percent off of uh, for the U.S. for shipping and. The book itself so we want to make sure it's accessible for teachers
1: amazing that's never happened before that's a first on the almost 300 episodes that we've done that's exciting we'll put that in the show notes as well and in the blog post so folks can do it i love that you're doing that thank you so much um it definitely sounds like uh well worth the time to to take a look at the book um Beth, how can people learn more about the work that you're doing? Tons all over. Um, uh, I know we, we know that you have your website and your blog. We'll link to that. We've linked to that before um, and social media as well. Beth, how can people learn more about the work you're doing aside from just the book?
0: Um, same thing. I have my website, Bethskelton.com. I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, the, you know, the whole socials. And then just as a, a note on March 6th, Tan and I are doing a free webinar, um, to kind of get the word out as well. And that's through English learner portal. It's, um, we've been advertising it as well. And, um, I can send you a link to that for the show notes. So it's a free webinar. It's kind of like an intro to kind of the, the framework, and how to support experienced multilinguals um, across the content areas so that's coming up and then we will run a book study as well on it um, so there's a whole course that's a book study course that participants can get um, a full university credit for basically reading the book and working with
1: us <laughs> so excellent send and- me a send me a link to that webinar because um, I want to watch it it's the webinar, I think, is going to actually be before we air this episode. So if you're listening now, that webinar will have already happened. Maybe we can find a way to link people to where they can watch a recording. Absolutely. I'm putting you on the spot. Okay, great. So look out for that. You can watch the recording. We'll link to that in the show notes and the blog post as well.
2: And also, we're going to be hosting on ML Chat Book Club. So for, t- for teachers who can't afford or they don't have the resources, financial support, to pay for a uh, really interactive online book course we're doing a f- totally a free one for teachers on twitter in the summer or possibly september we're still deciding but we promise to create a book study where teachers just buy the book and then we'll go through um like a seven week process of just reading each of the chapters and then having teachers interact and engage with activities so that'll be free on twitter as well
1: great and we'll keep up with that and we'll link that on our community brief and and social media as well so folks can find it um, we're gonna have to wrap it up here, but i I really, really appreciate both of you coming on a ton. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and Beth, I was saying before we started recording, I don't know how we haven't done this before. I'm so glad we did. and I hope that we can um, do it again soon. People know that I always ask folks about books or re- other resources. We're going to leave that, but I'm going to ask you to email me any book that you might be reading right now, aside from the ones that you're writing, um, so that we can share those in the show notes and the blog post as well. So I didn't get to that question, but it will be in in the in the um, blog, which you'll find at elevationeducation.com slash ELL uh, community. And with that, thank you both so much for joining us. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so, so much. much.